makes me think of, uh, ever seen the big Lebowski? The dew abides. Nothing? You don't remember? That's the, the uh, anyway, it's a great movie. You should watch it. Yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> Somebody out there laughed at that, I hope. Um, today we're going to look at waiting, waiting and watching in reference to the second coming of our Lord, and that is a reference to us, waiting and watching. Um, I thought about things that we wait for. Currently, I think we all wait for our Amazon packages, right? So you're waiting for your Amazon package. It's exciting, uh, maybe. And, but you don't, when you're waiting for your Amazon package does not cause you to change your behavior in any meaningful way in anticipation of a box on your front doorstep. But you wait for it. If you wait, therefore, a difference is wait for someone to come over. They say someone's coming over to your house to visit. <clears throat> well, this would cause you to change some behavior, like tidy up your house for once. Or maybe you are tidy. I don't know. Sorry for judging. But uh, you may tidy up your house. Perhaps it would cause you to put a smile on your face that what you didn't really want to put on to act welcoming. and But these things are a facade, a mask, a false impression, perhaps. <clears throat> Moving to something more meaningful, talk about waiting, I thought of a prearranged marriage. Imagine that you were prearranged to be married to some somebody whom you'd never met. This still happens in many parts of the world. You never met them, and now you're going to meet them for the first time and spend the rest of your life with them. Well, that would cause you to change yourself a bit, at least in some anticipation, and might change you to cause you, sorry, to change yourself more drastically, inwardly even, um, because, and why, what I'm getting at is from a package to a visitor to a spouse, <laughs> the impact upon you is increasing. And now think about, and much more important and influential, this meeting is with your Lord. All of us are going to meet the Lord. If you're a believer, you're going to meet the Lord face to face. Actually, all unbelievers are going to meet him face to face too. But they don't anticipate that to their demise, unfortunately. But we anticipate it. <coughs> or actually, do we? And how often do we anticipate it? Uh, and that's what we're going to get at today. Imagine meeting the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the most impactful meeting you're ever going to have. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. He's your husband. He's your high priest. And he's your judge. All of us are going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and be recompensed for the deeds in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 5.10 And so... Imagine you're about to appear to him. And knowing that now, anticipating that now, and in many of our Lord's parables, uh, especially the parables of the stewards or the slaves who are in the house once the master leaves, they're watching the parable of the ten virgins. They're watching, waiting, anticipating. And we are too as well. And in our messages concerning the second coming, this is the last one we're going to look at. So let's open it up with our first um, <clears throat> main passage. We'll start in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
Let's begin with prayer and be thankful. Uh, thank our Lord for all that He's done and all that He is for His Word, for this passage, for all things. And in humility and reverence so that we can learn, let's bow our heads and pray. My Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for all that you are and do. Thank you for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our Savior, our High Priest, our Lord. We thank you that through him we have salvation. Through him we have confidence in our eternal life with you. Through him, your Son, who is the Son of Man, the Son of God, who came and will come again to defeat all enemies. But he has already defeated them by his death on the cross and his resurrection. Now he stands at the, or sits at the right hand of God, is risen, and we, Father, anticipate his appearing. We will see it, every one of us, whether it's through death, rapture, we return with him at the second coming. All of these things are in view in the fact that we will be with him face to face forever. And that, you have said to us, will change us. Many things in your word change us, but this one as well. We ask, Father, that through your spirit it would do just that. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So our, our theme today is that the appearance of our Lord anticipated by the believer. And again, it would be through your death, uh, the rapture of the church, and also at the second coming. Which, of course, you had seen, you will see him. All of us will see him before the second coming, but... We return with him. But in reference to our passage, the appearing is the second coming. That's what Paul is referencing. And this, for us, this future meeting of our Lord has a very large impact on the manner of our life. And that's, of course, that's not true of all believers, though, and we'll see that. But for the believer who truly loves him and loves seeing him, and that would mean you would love it now, love him now. Not just when it occurs and let's say you're face to face with him in heaven and you love heaven. Well, who isn't going to love heaven? But this is you here now, apart from him, never having seen him face to face, that you actually do see him through his word, through his spirit, and that you love him and love is appearing. You long to see him. Think about it frequently. So far, we've seen three lessons concerning the second coming of Christ. Uh, and that's about it. There's far more to say about the second coming. I think it's, it would have to be one of the most, if not the most prophesied thing in the whole scripture. But um, for the sake of our study in Second Thessalonians, we're only going to see these four. Of course, it's not the last time we'll mention it. But we have seen that the person of Christ should tangibly appear before us. And that will be reemphasized today. It's, um, through trust and obedience to his word, through his spirit. By trust and obedience to his spirit that is in you. This is knowing and living the word of God. Jesus Christ comes into focus, his very person. And this is before you see him face to face. You're to see him now. We looked at that on Sunday. On Tuesday, we saw that the person of Christ is the warrior Messiah at his second coming. He's a warrior, but he's a warrior who fears the Lord. 
There's a paradox that is a truth in him. There's actually many of those. And we saw then that he gave us all the weaponry that he uses to defeat the enemy. He gave to us. He gave us his word, his spirit, and his armor. And we have, every believer has all, all those things, all three. And so we, as we'll see today, fight the good fight of faith. How do we fight that good fight? We have the word, we have the spirit, we have his armor. If we're diligent enough to wear them by faith, by trust, by obedience. And we will successfully overcome all things in life and live the life of Christ. So our second lesson was on the warrior Messiah at his second coming. And then yesterday we looked at his final and complete victory in Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 19. And that we just looked at its final, this final victory of our Lord. Uh, final defeat of the enemy. His kingdom, the kingdom of the enemy will never be again, never be another Gentile kingdom. Uh, and only uh, the, be the kingdom of Israel and the fulfillment of the covenant promises to Abraham, to David, to Israel. Uh, that will be fulfilled by our Lord during the millennial reign, his thousand-year reign on earth. And that is the kingdom of Israel, God's kingdom, the Lord's kingdom, of which we will be there with him. Uh, and so that's final victory. It's wonderful to see that, see him uh, coming Daniel 7, I love, just love that passage, verses 13 and 14. Uh, the Son of Man who comes in the clouds of the air. He, he quotes it of himself when he's standing before the Sanhedrin where they demand, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And he says, you will see the Son of Man coming in power in the clouds. And he quotes Daniel 7:14. So finally... We look at our anticipation now. So we kind of take this, yesterday we're in the future really, in Revelation 19 at his second coming, the actual prophecy of it. And in this case, today we come back to us in this age and our anticipation of this, which is mentioned in several passages in the New Testament. We look at our own anticipation, waiting for, watching for, longing for his appearing. And to do this, we're exploring this word, epiphania, where we get our word epiphany from. In 2 Thessalonians 2.8, there's several other uses of this word in the New Testament. So look at 2 Thessalonians 2.1, just get the context again. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. See this happen in Revelation 13. You see it also prophesied by our Lord uh, in Matthew 24, and Luke 21, and Mark 13. And where the Lord states, this is the abomination of desolation who sets up his image in the temple and demands worship. That's in the tribulation. So verse 5. 
Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed? For the <clears throat> mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So it's restrained now, but not dead. I mean, he can influence. We see this, see it over and over, that Satan can influence. Prowls about like a roaring lion, right? A beautiful simile of our this, this Satan who is like a lion trying to devour anyone that he can. And so it's already at work, but he's restrained. And then he says in verse 8, then that lawless one will be revealed. And that's when the restraint is removed in verse 8. And then in the tribulation, he is revealed. Halfway through the tribulation, at three and a half years in, he does succeed, as we saw yesterday, in destroying three kings and bringing the whole world under his command or under his authority. So the lawless one is revealed. But then quickly, Paul just jumps right to his destruction, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring an end bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. So the slaying we've already seen, this means to kill by the breath of his mouth is the sword that comes out of the Lord's mouth, which is his word. The sword is mentioned in Isaiah 11 with other uh, parts of his armor. And he destroys with his word, his weapon of choice to destroy the Antichrist and his kingdom, which is in Babylon, is his word, the very word that God used to create the worlds. That's the power of his word. And don't forget, God gave you his word, so you have this power. And I say, I want to repeat this, that there's a part of the Lord's armor in Isaiah 59 that is vengeance. And that part, we don't get. Right? So we don't have the sword of the Spirit, the helmet, the breastplate, the shoes, the shin guards, all of that stuff, right? The belt of truth. None of it is to be used. It's a shield of faith. None of it is to be used in revenge towards others. But the rest of it we are given. So, he destroys with the breath of his mouth and brings to an end by his appearance. There's two words here. The appearance of his coming. A little bit repetitious, though they're very similar. Obviously, when he comes, he's going to appear. An appearance... Is a manifestation of Christ. This word epiphania, uh, phano, the root word, means light. Uh, originally means to shine. And so this has a bit of, and you can see why shining would man, uh, uh, evolve itself into the word for appearing. But this is epiphania, the epi prefix emphasizes or intensifies the word. So epiphania becomes... Um, appearance, it means appearance, the manifestation of Christ, the shining forth, and it's used for both his first advent and his second advent. Now, the first advent and the second advent are a little different, to say the least, not just a little different. In the first advent, he's the slain lamb. In the second advent, he's the lion of Judah. In the first advent, he lays down his life. In the second advent, he takes life. Um, in the first advent, we have the cross. In the second advent, we have the crown. And yet, you can't have one without the other. And so they're linked, obviously, in this person forever. And the whole purpose of it is for you. 
Right? It's not to glorify himself. He's already God. He doesn't need. He, he doesn't get any more glory. You know. He always said, "What do you get God for his birthday? He already has everything." But uh, what he has done this for is for you and for me to bring many sons to glory. The first advent in which he is the suffering servant and in the second advent where he's the victorious king are both for us. They tie together the redemption of mankind and not just the redemption, but the blessings of mankind. Now the other uses of epiphania appear in the New Testament in the pastoral epistles. We're all like, whoa, hold on. What are the pastoral epistles? Well, there's three of them. First and second Timothy and Titus. Uh, Timothy and Titus are pastors. And Paul wrote them letters that uh, emphasize how they should pastor and how they should uh, teach and run their churches. And so that's why they're called the pastoral epistles. They're important, especially for pastors. But they're important for all of us. You can, don't throw out the, don't go to the Timothys or Titus and say, well, these are for pastors, they're not for me. Um, the application to all spiritual gifts, just as it is to the pastor, is there for us all, no matter what your spiritual gift is. So the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, they're likely written after Paul's first imprisonment. Uh, we don't actually know exactly when. We know that Second Timothy is his last letter that he writes, and he writes it in a prison from a prison situation. So our guess, because the Book of Acts doesn't go any farther than his first imprisonment, the Book of Acts doesn't go any farther after that to like his death or what happens at the end of Book of Acts. It just ends on an open note and. You know, we'll all scratch our heads. Well, did he get released? Did he die in prison there? Did he get, uh, you know, we don't know. But it would seem, and most scholars agree, that Paul was probably released from his first imprisonment in Rome, but then arrested again, in which he would then die or have his, he would be um, executed. Um, and so these are written in the early 60s, not the 1960s. If you say, oh, yeah, during the time of love and peace and free, free sex and all that, no, not then. Although I'm sure that was all going on in the Roman Empire in the 60s. <clears throat> Timothy was handpicked by Paul on his second missionary journey. There was prophecy about Timothy. And that Paul had heard this prophecy. We don't know much about it, but Paul says in two different occasions that you were prophesied, Timothy, prophesied of him. So Timothy was handpicked by Paul. Titus was a co-worker of Paul for at least 15 years before he wrote his letter to Titus. These letters are filled with rules for pastors and care for pastors, how pastors should care for themselves and their families and also for their churches. In general, the pastoral epistles were written with a double purpose in mind, all involving the local church. One was teaching right doctrine and refuting wrong doctrine. Uh, multiple times in these epistles, Paul attacks the getting involved with stupid arguments or uh, genealogies and stuff like that in which people... Uh, seek to be wise in things that don't make any matter or they don't make people wise. So right doctrine, proper administration of churches, and discipline 
or what these epistles are about. <clears throat> so, go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6. The first thing we're going to see is keep the commandments perfectly. How's that? How's that for edifying you? I mean it. Don't get it. It's not me that means it. It's Paul that means it. He says, keep the commandment without stain or reproach. That means perfect. And what we mean, therefore, by perfect is something that, and I talk about this quite a bit, we must not compromise the law of Christ. Any commandments, you know, husbands to love her wife. Well, you know, I love her. Uh, I love her. Do you love her as Christ loves the church? Because that is the command. Um, all the commands. Lay down your life for your friends. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm nice. I'm nice. <laughs> pray without ceasing. Well, I pray. Come on, back off. Whatever, all, all the excuses we make that, yeah, we're keeping the commands, and we're not, that's what this is for. And he's going to tie this to this very thing that makes us all a little uneasy. This is tied to his coming, his appearing. And you see, that gets back to my what I opened with. You're going to meet the Lord face to face. He's going to appear, the perfect one, the one who's going to judge you. And judge your deeds. And it's not like I'm afraid of him, but what he is to me, what he's done for me, this is the one I'm going to meet. Can I picture that? And I think all of us should. And if we haven't, we should start. What is it to truly, what you know of him, that you're going to meet him face to face? Forget about that song, and I love that song. Will I dance for you, Jesus, or whatever, you know? Um, not what you're going to do, but just imagine the meeting. And, you know, anticipate. And that's what Paul gets to here. So he says to Timothy, verse 11, But flee from these things. Now that these things are false doctrines, ungodliness, and the love of money. To be specific, flee from these things. You could say all ungodliness, flee from it. He tells Timothy in the second letter, flee from youthful lusts. Flee from these things, you man of God. You love how Paul does this. It says, Timothy, remember who you are. Now, this in no way, some expositors like to say that Timothy was involved in these things, and that's why Paul has to say this. That's an inference. That's a conjecture. We don't know that. You can't really say that from the language. I mean, it might be, but I can't imagine Timothy has a love of money. But anyway, flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality 
and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So this paragraph near the end of the letter um, ends with a doxology. We call this this a a, a use of uh, almost a poetic uh, glorification of Jesus Christ. Right? To him be the glory, right? And that's that glory is doxa, so we call it a, doxo- a doxology. And this Paul says, keep the commandment without stain of reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which will come at the proper time. And he is blessed and only sovereign, right? This is the one who's going to judge me. He's sovereign. He's going to judge my deeds. This is the one who is perfect in unapproachable light. And so when I... Follow him. Obey his commands. Come to know him. Follow him. Pick up your cross and follow me, he said. When I follow him, should I follow him kind of halfway? None of us are going to say, none of us are perfect, right? We're sinners. We know this. But when it comes to keeping the commandments, what should our attitude be towards them in light of the fact that I'm going to stand before this one and be with him forever. And you see here, there's no, there's no throwing in here. Well, you'll get crowns. That, that's actually coming. <laughs> but it's a crown of righteousness, which is given to those who do righteousness. You, know, you get the crown of righteousness for loving righteousness. When you're in heaven, you could care less about really the crown. Because you love righteousness, what it represents. Getting there, getting ahead of myself. But, you know, we don't see here any, there's no like monetary, material motivation. It is, look, the one who is perfect, glorified, the one who is none of us have seen, is the one that we're going to see. He's going to appear. That word appearing is epiphania. Timothy is a son of of God, or he says, you man of God. The man of God is an adopted child of God. And notice that he says, you man of God, pursue things. Pursue, as he says here, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. These are the things of life, of the Christ life. Things in this world, things that are going to someday be judged by the appearing of the Lord, are going to try and stop you from attaining what you're pursuing. If I'm pursuing righteousness, it's not going to be a smooth sailing, is it? Hence, he says, fight the good fight. I wouldn't have to fight if that path to righteousness was just nice and flat and smooth. Maybe even a little downhill. But it's not. There's wall after wall after wall after obstacle after obstacle. Many of the obstacles within me, other people, situation, circumstances, wall after wall after wall after wall, ditch after ditch after ditch. It's a minefield. And we'll pray, God, could you make this easier? And you can pray that. Paul prayed that, 2 Corinthians 12. Could you take this thorn out of my flesh? And that silence, that's what Paul heard. He didn't hear a resounding no from heaven. He just heard nothing. Could you take, he played three times, he said. No response. So, either i got to quit on this apostle thing, or 
I pursue it with the thorn. And Paul jumped over that wall. And he says in that passage, I glory in the thorn. Glory in it. Because it taught me how to be strong when I'm weak. I could have never learned that lesson without the thorn. Same with us. Whatever his thorn is are the obstacles, the ditches, the mines in the, the minefield, the walls that you've got to climb over. God's not going to remove those walls. He put them there for a purpose so that your faith would increase. Or as James says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. James 1, 2. Because why? They strengthen, they increase, James says, your endurance. Climb those walls. Get over them. And Paul's motivation here to Timothy is fight the good fight because you're going to see him. He's going to appear to you. And then he gives us this wonderful example, Pontius Pilate. This is Jesus in his trial. Pilate, the arrogant. He's probably a Stoic. So he says, what is truth? That's just what a Stoic would say. And then he walked away. But Pilate's right in his face. Don't you know I have the power to crucify you or set you free? And how does Jesus respond to him? You know, here's the Son of God who could just rip his head off if he wanted to. Or call down the 12 legions of angels. All right, Pilate, all your legions out there, Roman army, which is the strongest and greatest army in the world at the time, let's put you against my 70,000 angels and see who wins the battle. But he doesn't do that. He just speaks to him. With what? The truth. All who are of the truth hear my voice. I am a king. You have no power over me unless it was given to you from above. He's relaxed. He's cool. He's already been beaten to a pulp. And so, this is the one we're going to appear to. He'll have those scars in his hands as well. That's the one we're going to see. And, you know, there's a passage in 1 John. I was going to put it in today. Actually, just couldn't fit it, but um, with time-wise. 1 John 2.28 says that some will have shame when he appears. And, and I struggle with that verse. I do. I'm, I've heard it interpreted to me, and I, I don't like any interpretation I've heard, <laughs> which doesn't mean I'm right, by the way. It's just that, I just don't get it yet. But it's there. John writes, some will be shamed. And I don't know if that's on earth or at the judgment seat of Christ. I don't know where that is. But what I do know is that it would be true. Is that for a believer there could be shame. There's another, I think it's Mark 8.38 says the same thing. Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of you. And Jesus says it. That's what he says. Mark 8. And, you know, do any of us want that? And I'm going to look at those scars and say, well, I never once laid down my life for anybody because my whole Christian life was spent all centered on me and my comfort and what I wanted. Is that what we want? And I, I can't see, the, I mean, I can see that this is an obvious application to this Fight the good fight. Pursue righteousness because you're going to see him. And it's not a guilt thing. It's a, I'm going to see him. There's a reality to that. Be like, you know, I want that to be one when I see him. 
this is one I have already loved. And, and by the way, it's not a works thing. What we see here in the scripture is that if you know him and you love him, you will keep his commands. That's, how, that's what he promises. So first thing, know him. When you know him, you'll love him. When you love him, you're going to be all in on this. Second uh, Timothy chapter 4. So, with, as I said before, with Timothy and Titus, they have work to do like in teaching and admonishing from the pulpits, their pulpits, that most of us don't have to do. Uh, and But that doesn't mean that their exhortations by Paul don't apply to us because whatever your spiritual gift is and whatever your ministry is, that you have to pursue righteousness and peace and gentleness and godliness to fulfill your ministry as much as any pastor has to. It's just that these are written to pastors, and that's why there's emphasis on teaching. Now, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, we will see, fulfill your calling... As you are in the presence of the returning Lord, as if you are, and I, I didn't put in if, I almost did when I first started writing this slide, but, I, but you are, you are, the Lord, the angels, the saints. Now, uh, some people have thought, well, there's this something like a glass sea up in heaven and they're all looking through it and they're seeing what you're doing and all of that. That's just silly. Uh, but we have, as as Uh, The writer of Hebrews says at the end of chapter 11, after he goes through all those Old Testament heroes, he said, we have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. And it's not so, it doesn't have to be that they're looking at us. It doesn't, or it could be, I, I don't know, you know, God doesn't tell us. But that they are, they have come before us and have glorified the Lord. There are myriads of angels who always do the Lord's will. Now, they're not people with sin natures. Right, so they've got, they have an advantage, and they also have a disadvantage, <laughs> in a way. I don't, I don't know what angels are all about uh, very much. Neither does anybody. But, but what we do know, and uh, yeah, that's a baseball stadium, right? It's uh, the playoffs must be coming soon, I would imagine. Uh, got away from professional sports a while ago, but you're being watched. You're being watched. Um, and watch by whom? Well, you know, the Lord, first and foremost. He said he prays for you continually. He's watching. Not a hair of your head is uncounted. He's watching. And as so look at uh, 2 Timothy 4.1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. See that word presence? That's what it means. It means to be in the presence of it's a simple word. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. This And by, this prepositional phrase has nowhere to go other than back to the presence of God and of Christ. In other words, it has to be a part, This their prepositional phrases have to be a part of some clause in the sentence. And here it just goes back because verse 2 starts with a command, preach the word. So 
that's like, that's a new thought in in verse two. Preach the word. That's a whole new thought. But in uh, but in uh, the first part, this by his appearing and his kingdom, that would go back to the present. And so we have here his kingdom and his himself, who we are in the presence of. Timothy is to be, we continue reading there. I didn't put it in for the sake of time, but Timothy is to be ready to teach. It says in season and out of season. And this, as a pastor, I I know this. When people want to hear it and they're all enthusiastic and your faces are enthusiastic, it's much easier to teach, believe me. But when it's when they're not faces and you know whatever face you make, don't worry about it. I don't I don't care anymore. I'm over that. But uh, don't don't you know you don't have to look at me and smile if you want. You can go to sleep. You can frown at me. You can uh, whatever you want to do. It, it doesn't matter. But what what does matter is that for per pastors, you know, there's some messages go easily and some are very hard. <laughs> and he says to him, keep preaching. It's very encouraging to a pastor. But also, if you're not a pastor, to whatever you're doing, uh, whatever your ministry is and whatever your spiritual gift is, it's, you would concur with me that sometimes it's easier than it is at other times. Sometimes it's very hard to do. People don't appreciate you. People don't notice or whatever. If you have a service gift and you're laying down your life and you're serving or you're giving or whatever, sometimes it's very easy to do. Sometimes people are acknowledging it, and it's wonderful and fun, and other times it's hard. But you see, we say, well, nobody's noticing, so I'm not going to do it. <laughs> or the ones that aren't noticing don't even say thanks, and they, they actually are walking all over me and persecuting me and say there are people in my family who hate me and blah, 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 whatever the excuse is. But you see, what Paul says to Timothy is make sure you understand that they're watching in the presence of Jesus and God, the Son of God, the Father, and the whole kingdom. They're all watching you. But I don't get a moment of privacy? No. Timothy is to be ready to teach when they like it, when they don't. He has to have the courage to reprove and rebuke. No pastor wants to do that. Believe me, I, I, I guess maybe some do, and I wouldn't count them as good pastors. If someone like can't wait to rebuke someone, there uh, that would be uh, a signal. Uh, he needs to have courage. He's to exhort with great patience. He's to endure hardship while fulfilling his ministry, and like Paul, he is to fight the good fight. So, what are you to do? What are you called to do by God? Timothy's called to teach, to exhort, to do it with great patience. We're called to fight the good fight. As he's already said to him, fight the good fight. We see it here. Look at 2 Timothy 4, 6. Another occurrence of appearance. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Meaning that this is his, his last letter. This is Paul's, um, his execution is imminent. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, 
but also to all who have loved his appearing. That word appearing, that's epiphania. Same word in our passage. Are you fighting for this fulfillment? Fight the good fight. He says, I have, Paul says. And we, fortunately for us, we have the book of Acts where we can see him fighting the good fight. And this one, it's marvelous that God, through Luke, gave us the history of Paul. And Paul writes more than any other in, in the New Testament by far. He writes about half of it. And, and we can see him struggling. We can see him in prison. We can see him succeeding. We can see him not succeeding. And we can see him fighting. We can see him keeping the faith. And he's a, an example to us. And just as he says he is. <clears throat> so, fight the good fight. I picked a Gladiator here because um, there's a new Gladiator movie coming out. I love Gladiator. I've seen it like 20 times. Great movie. There's a second one coming out. And Chris was telling me that there's a new Gladiator coming out. And I was like, she was like, some of the original actors, um, the, the black guy there who was the slave who uh, became uh, Maximus's friend, if you've seen the movie, he's in, I forget what his name is. He's a great actor. Um, he's in the new one and another one's in the new one. She's telling me all this. And I'm like, is Russell Crowe in the new one? And she just looks at me and says, Joe, he died. And I'm like, Russell Crowe died? And she's like, no, stupid, in the movie. Maximus dies in the end, right? He dies. You can't have him come back. I was like, oh, right, right, right. We had quite a laugh over that. So then, a couple weeks later, she read some article about it, and sure enough, Russell Crowe is in the new one. I'm sure he's like old and he's got like old and fat now, right? I mean, maybe they got him in shape or they do a little CGI. But I'm like, so yeah, they do like flashbacks, I guess. And so he's in the new one. Should be fun. Anyway, that was your commercial. <laughs> All right, have loved is in the is a perfect participle. This clarifies this nicely for us. Because we would say to ourselves, what believer wouldn't love his appearing? Right? When he appears, if it's the second coming, I'm returning with him on white horses. Not a white horse. Like, right? Who's not going to love that? Or when I, if it's a rapture, I'm absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. I'm in my resurrection body. and I'm in heaven. Who's not going to love that? We're all going to love that. But a perfect tense means that this action of loving is a participle. A participle means it's a kind of adjectival. But this, forget that. The perfect tense means that the loving happens before the seeing. Perfect means the action happens in the past and that the results continue to the present. And so, which makes perfect sense. If I love the Lord and loved his appearing, when he does appear, I'm going to love it. But the perfect here tells him that I've already loved him and longed to see him. And this you can't fake. Picture a believer who has been living for self in the world, basically all his Christian life, and never really followed the word or followed God. Let's say they're believers, and they're instantly in the presence of Christ. Okay, 
Now, picture another believer who has loved Christ and pursued Christ for years and has longed to see him. Almost every day he thinks about seeing his Lord, and he instantly sees him. There's a great difference there. Not all believers would long to see Christ. In the abstract, you could say, hey, do you long to see Christ? Any believer would say, yeah, of course I do. I long to go to heaven and all that. But what, they, what they're longing for is heaven. We're talking about those who love him before. They want to see him. And this shows us that actually you can see him. This in our past lesson. I think it was Sunday. That through his word and through his spirit, you can see him now. By knowing him, 1 John chapter 2 tells us that we know him. When we love him, we know him. And when we love him, we keep his commands. Just like Jesus said in John 14. <clears throat> so this crown of righteousness, the crown of righteousness, therefore, is given to those who love righteousness. Right? Because if you love him, you know him and you keep his commands. What would that make you? A liver of righteousness. A lover of righteousness. You can't separate righteousness from the person of Christ. If you love him, you love his righteousness. And so, of course you're going to get the crown of righteousness. But how exciting is this to know that if I love him, and therefore love is appearing, that this crown is going to be given to me by the Lord. It's an exciting thing to think about. All right, onward to Titus. Go to Titus chapter 2. It's nice that the, uh, the people who put the Bible together put all the T's together. I always appreciated that. Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus. <clears throat> Titus is on the island of Crete. I meant to put a little map up just for the fun of it if you don't know where Crete is. It's a big old island south of Greece in the Mediterranean. Um, uh, a, a very contested island, I think, uh, in our current world. Uh, the, uh, anyway, but uh, Paul instructs him on how to appoint elders, which are pastors and leaders, presbyteroses, in various towns. He instructs Titus on teaching the Christians to observe good character and have good behavior, uh, to reject false doctrine. Right? So it's another. It's a pastoral epistle. Uh, that is about the, how a pastor should be, how he's to care for his flock, and how he himself is to be cared for. Now, in Titus 2.11, we have, we have again this similar thing, and, and you know, this righteousness and godliness, and, you know, would Paul, are we maybe thinking that Paul's only interested in having groups of moral people all over the Roman Empire? You know, I just want a bunch of people who call themselves Christians to be nice and to obey the law and to, you know, to be moral. But there's something greater than that, which includes morality, but it's far, far greater, which is our connection to, our union with the Lord Jesus Christ who's coming back. And because I represent him, I'm him, his ambassador, I'm in union with him, the one with the scars on his hands. I'm, the one, I'm in union with the one who is pure and lovely and wonderful and strong. And I'm all, I should be all of those things. 
It's not just being nice and kind and living a good life. It's being like Him so that I glorify Him. Hence, His return is of extreme importance to me. And seeing Him is of extreme importance. So what we have here is our anticipated hope is the fulfillment of our expectation. Right? Finally. That's, I had to find a picture. of. It's so fun looking for pictures that Jesus are in them. And boy, people try to draw his face. I don't know why people try to do that. But you know, anyway, uh, our anticipated hope will be fulfilled. Look at Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared. By the way, that's the verb. Epiphanao or, or something. But uh, th- that's the verb. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Now, that's the first advent that has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly or soberly, righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That's a marvelous passage for the deity of Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Notice, zealous for good deeds. So the uh, here we have the grace of God has appeared, and yet this appearing of our Lord has instructed us in something. Is salvation, just the, the truth of his salvation is the springboard, if you will, or the bridge to all this instruction about how to deny ungodliness or that we are to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live soberly, righteously, and godly. And that comes from his appearing. Right? I'm, I'm in union with this one. This is my Lord, my Savior, my high priest, my husband, my judge. And so it all flows from his appearance, but then he turns to his appearing again in verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and appearing. And this word looking for means to wait for or to look forward to. Looking for is okay, but it's not actually the Greek word for looking with your eyeballs. It's actually a word for waiting for or anticipating. And so... In verse 13, waiting for. Uh, The coming appearance of Christ is the future reality for the reason that we do what we do now. His coming is a reality for us. A reality of the fact that we want now to love in a pure way to be like Him. Our behavior, our love, uh, the way we think what we believe, what we set our minds upon, everything that we do, everything that's a part of life is an anticipation of this. Because when he comes, I'm in my resurrection body and that's the fulfillment of all that I've been redeemed for. It's the whole purpose of him redeeming me. And so as Paul says, we anticipate it or we look for, looking for the blessed hope and appearing and the glory of our great God and Savior. Now, there's a couple of things here, and for the sake of time here, I'll make this quick, but uh, there's a metonymy. A metonymy is where you substitute a word 
for another word that means the same. So when we say like um, the Pentagon, you, could, you, don't, you can use the word Pentagon to mean the military and not the actual building or like the White House. Uh, you say a decree came from the White House. Well, it didn't come from the actual house. It came from the executive branch that shouldn't be decreeing because that should go through the legislature. But I'm not going to get into that right now. Uh, and anyway, that's what a metonymy is. A metonymy is a substitution. And here we have a substitution for Christ, which is grace. Notice what has appeared. Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of our uh, appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's his return. But look at the verse 11 is the one I meant to get to. For the grace of God has appeared. What does grace look like? Is it a tangible, visible thing? No, it's not. It's invisible. But its manifestation is visible. And so it's the grace of God that sent his son. God so loved the world and by his grace he sent his son. So grace here is a word that means the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we see this again. Go to Titus 3.3. 3. Now, Titus 3 is about the first coming of our Lord, uh, the epiphania, the use of this word. But real quick, and I'm, I'm just about out of time here. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Isn't that wonderful? For we, who's we? All of us. What's your description? You're a fool. You're disobedient. You're deceived. You're enslaved to lusts and pleasures. You spend your life in malice and envy. You're hateful and you hate one another. Bravo. See, if you know that about you, how could you be proud about who you are other than being proud in your Savior who has made you? Because And then he says in verse 4, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, when he saved us, sorry, when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. There's our word epiphania. And it's another metonymy. Metonymy, again, where a word is used as a substitute for another noun. In this case, a personal um, noun, not a, um, um, what's that? <laughs> a name. That's a, some kind of noun. But uh, it is here, kindness and love, and you put that together with grace, and that all are used for the appearance of our Lord. When grace appeared, when kindness appeared, when love appeared, but those three things are invisible. Grace, kindness, love. But all of them are in our Lord. And notice that Paul uses the word appeared. Now, going back to the first lesson of this whole week on Sunday, 
We said that we can actually see the Lord tangibly, but though not physically. But notice what appeared. Grace, kindness, love. So, grace, can I see it? It's an invisible thing. But I can see it. I can actually feel it. Kindness from God, I mean. You also see it in people because God works through people to show himself. And so oftentimes we'll see these three things in others. More often than not, we won't. But we see them come from God. Grace, kindness, and love. And we actually experience them. And notice that in these two passages in Titus, they're tied to the Lord Jesus Christ in his appearing of his purpose. And actually, in both cases, in reference to his first coming. So can I see him? Most definitely. The question for us is, do we see him? We have to be diligent. What have we seen? Fight the good fight. Pursue. Um, and, and, and words like these to actually tell us that with the appearing of our Lord, the one that we're going to see, that we are changed within our hearts and changed in what we desire and what we pursue and what we um, will for, uh, what jazzes us, which takes up our time, what we truly desire is changed by the fact that I know I'm going to see this one face to face. And that I now in time I can see him by seeing things like his grace and his love and his kindness. And so the second coming of our Lord actually has great application to us now, today. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and your grace, your love, and your kindness, which you have manifested through our Lord and Savior. Thank you for him. Thank you that you have set us free through him and his amazing sacrifice on Calvary. We ask, Father, that through your spirit, each of us would be enlightened according to the words that we have seen from your scripture today. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen.